an appropriate song as we go into this book. We continue our study uh, called Famous Last Words. We're in part 15. I can hardly believe that. But we've been doing this over the last couple of years uh, in this part of the year. Uh, we're looking at Revelation chapter 13, and, and just the song reminded me, you know, how do we defeat the enemy? We have that little glimpse earlier in Revelation. We defeat the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? Yes. Amen. Okay, let's pray together as we begin. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we are here to hear from you, and I ask God that you would Open my words, open my mouth to speak your words, and that it would be your words and not mine. And Lord, we pray that you will open up this mysterious book to us and help us to understand it and to apply it to our lives. And Lord, we pray that you will give us clarity of thought and purity of heart. We pray that you will reveal yourself in your word and in us. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, the, the book of Revelation, <laughs> it always feels like such a, such a daunting task, you know. It's uh, probably one of the most misunderstood books of the Bible, but it is not something to be afraid of. Um, primarily, this was written, believe it or not, and I know that there are some really scary images in here, but it was written to be a word of encouragement. It was written to be a, a word of hope to the first century Christians. Some of, those were, some of those folks were going through some serious persecution, and some of them were about to go into some really serious persecution. And uh, they were under the emperor Domitian, who was not fond of Christians. In fact, I've read that he really disliked Christians. He started off really disliking the Jews, and then by association started disliking the Christians, and then began disliking them even more and uh, persecution that took place under Domitian, even though he had a short rule during this time that John was exiled on the island of Patmos, it, he was particularly vicious in the way he pursued it. Well, as we go into this book, the overwhelming message to God's people is that no matter what, keep believing and keep obeying God. That really is the main message as we proceed through just remember going in, of course, you've read the end of the book. And so you know that Jesus rules, God's kingdom comes, Satan and his followers are done away with for good, and hope wins. So that's the, that's the thing we cling to as we go in. You know, uh, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, before Mother's Day, we did a little re-up review, and uh, we established the fact that, that the word revelation and the word apocalypse are the same word. Apocalypse does not mean the end of the world. It means to unveil or to reveal or to open up. And so this book is meant to reveal something. It's Jesus revealing something. The book is one big letter written to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. And when John is exiled on the island of Patmos because he wouldn't stop preaching Jesus, he receives a vision in which Jesus speaks to John and tells him to write down everything he sees and send it to the seven churches. So what John sees is kind of a wild ride. We have to be very careful not to take our own bias into this book uh, because we've heard all kinds of things, right? We've, we've heard TV preachers and we've read 
things that we've seen, movies, you know, The Number of the Beast and, you know, all of those movies that circulated in the 70s and 80s. And, and you know, we've seen these things that give us a preconceived notion of what, uh, what we expect to see and hear. You know, our, our daughter, Stephanie, is an oboist. And uh, she played uh, for, for a few years with the, Marian, the Lower Marion Symphony near Philadelphia. And uh, we got to see quite a lot of her concerts and really enjoyed going. And, you know, whenever we'd go to the concerts, we'd come home and say, wasn't that great? The oboe was the best. <laughs> well, that's because our daughter played the oboe, right? Now, there were 66 other instruments playing, but as far as we were concerned, they were all just backup for the oboe. And that's how we saw it. We had kind of a bias. And that can happen when we go into the book of Revelation. We come into the book of Revelation with a bias, and we come out only hearing the oboe, only hearing what we expected to hear or seeing what we expect to see. So I ask you to sort of relax into it a little bit. Let God speak to you. Let his word say what it actually says and not necessarily what someone has said that it says. So let's start there. Um, it's easy to go into Revelation with this preconceived idea, especially this one. This is, this is the most controversial chapter in the entire book, and we're going to do it in one, one sermon this morning. But um, we want to be careful as we walk through and hear what God is saying. And so I, I want to share... And I did not bring my clicker. I'm sorry, guys. Could, could you hit my slides for me this morning? Thank you. Uh, first thing we need to know going in is that Revelation is highly symbolic. Um, lots of it is not meant to be taken literally. Now, some of it is. And that's where you've got to have discernment to kind of see where it's shifting into the visionary part that's a little bit wild. You know, some of it's like a little psychedelic dream or something. And, and some of it is very unclear, and yet some of it is so clear. You know, so we have to have discernment. And because it's, it's highly symbolic, um, it, 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 we could assume that it doesn't really, you know, that we could ignore it and it doesn't really mean anything, but it actually does. It meant something very specific to the people in their day. The second thing I want to point out is that Revelation is mostly Scripture. Uh, in fact, it's, it's very much scripture. Um, every part of the book is almost something that is a rewording of scripture or a quoting of scripture for some, from somewhere else. It, Revelation, all of Revelation's content can pretty much be found in all the rest of the other 65 books of the Bible. You may say to yourself, well, I think I've heard that before somewhere. It's probably true. You probably read it. Maybe you read it in Ezekiel. Maybe you read it in Daniel. Maybe you read it in Matthew. You know, all of those are quoted in some way in these passages. The third thing I want to point out here this morning is that no new information is given about salvation. Now, that's important. You know, going in, you need to remember that nothing has changed in terms of how you come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. To know God, you must receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. That is how you gain eternal life. There's no hidden knowledge in this book that changes anything about how we come to Jesus, okay? That's already really established in Christ. Fourth thing I want to point out is that Revelation is prophecy 
uh, just like Isaiah, just like the other Old Testament prophets, it has warnings, it has judgments, it has calls to repent and return to God, um, it has many promises, and, and the book is as much about forthtelling as it is about foretelling. You know, I think that it's very, it, there's a great temptation for us to take the book of Revelation and put it all in the future. Now, we'll talk about some of the, in the, in the future, we'll talk about some of the theological reasons that, that people do that all the time. But there's a lot that's happening in the present. And God is telling his people some things that we need to learn, some lessons that we need to learn, and some warnings that we need to hear as well as they did. Um, but it's not all set in the future as if, you know, we can just pick the whole book up and plunk it down and say, you know, this is happening next week, next Tuesday, um, at four o'clock in the afternoon, and at five o'clock, that's when the beast comes. You know, it's not, that's not the way it lays out. That's not the way the book works, so we need to understand that. Fifth thing I want to point out is it's always first century first. So if you are interpreting this book, if you're reading this book, remember it first applied to those Christians who were under stress from persecution in the first century. It applied to them first, the people who heard it first. It, God wrote it to them, not to us. God wrote it for us. And there's a difference. You know, it was written specifically to that group of people, but it was preserved for us so that we can learn from it and hear those things that God wants us to hear in it. Uh, and the next thing, the last thing, is that this is not a roadmap to the future. You know, uh, we've said a little bit about that already, but it's, it's not just laying out what's going to happen next. It's, it's already occurred, most of it, in the 80s and 90s of the first century. And like every prophecy, there is some future-looking parts. And they apply to all of us, both those people who lived then and all of us who live now. And one of the really cool things is that Almost all of the future-looking stuff is good stuff, especially the latter part of the book. So we'll get to that. So let's get into the book. Let's look at Revelation chapter 13. And I want to read it in two parts this morning because there's basically two characters or two actors in this play. There are two beasts, one from the sea and one from the land. And if you have your Bible with you, I really encourage you to read along because uh, there's some very interesting stuff here. We're in Revelation 13. And I want to read the first 10 verses. John writes, The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea, and it had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and his great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. 
It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, whose, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Now you may remember that if you've read back, if you, you know that the chapter right before this one is the one that talks about Satan's fall. We sang about that this morning. It talks about his origin story, his fall from heaven with a third of the angels. Chapter 12 and verse 9 says, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. And so when we get into chapter 13 and we start reading about the dragon, we know who the dragon is already, don't we? We just got told that in the previous chapter. This dragon is Satan. It's the devil, the one who leads the world astray. And we know from this other passage that Satan failed in his attempt to overthrow God in heaven. And so he turns the battle to the humans. This is God's crowning creation. And he tries to corrupt humanity and destroy God's people in particular. So above all, that's what's really happening in chapter 13 here. Satan goes after humanity, especially God's people. Revelation 12, 17 says that when Satan failed to defeat God and all those angels who were loyal to him, it says, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. So we have this battle, we have this enemy, and we're in a spiritual war here. In John's vision to wage war on God's people, uh, Satan recruits a couple of helpers. It says he recruits two beasts from the underworld, one from the sea and one from the earth. Incidentally, you may remember that in the book of Job, around chapter 40 and 41, and God's giving Job that kind of, he's kind of giving him a bit of a lecture about, <laughs> about his attitude. And in there, he talks about two beasts, one from the sea, called Leviathan, and one from the land, called Behemoth. And so there's this same kind of imagery coming in here. And, and he's also using a lot of words from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 was a really popular part of the book of Daniel during the time of Christ. And people studied it intensely because they, they, they saw what God had done among his people earlier, and they believed that there was some kind of clue in Daniel 7 that would tell them what was happening right now, would explain all of the warfare that seemed to be going on against God's people. And so they studied it intensely. And Daniel talks about four different beasts, four different ones who rise up, four kingdoms. Each head on the beast represents a kingdom. Um, I was reading an N.T. Wright the other day, and he was saying that these, this is not talking about real monsters who kind of come up out of the 
the Mediterranean Sea and attack the Holy Land. That's not what that's about. He's talking about the earthly powers that these monsters represent. They're symbolic of this power that, that is really coming against God's people. And it says that someone called the Ancient of Days. Do we know who the Ancient of Days is? That's God, right? The Ancient of Days. It says someone called the Ancient of Days has a trial and sits in judgment on those four beasts in the, in the book of Daniel. And it says he takes their power from them and he gives that power to one like the Son of God. Do we know who one like the Son of God is? <laughs> That's Jesus. That's Jesus as we understand from the New Testament who that is. And that's Jesus in a, in a pre-incarnate state. So here we have John who's looking at Daniel and, trying, and, and Jesus has given him this vision and the best way he can describe it is in terms of something that he already knows. He knows about the four beasts in Daniel and he brings them together in one beast. And so we have uh, Daniel's monsters becoming one monster here, one that's part bear and part lion and part leopard, which were all parts of the monsters that he had talked about. They're pagan, and they're blasphemous against God in heaven. It's not really hard when you look at the context. This is written to those early churches in persecution. It's not hard to figure out who the beast is. This beast is the city Rome, the empire Rome, the center of, of pagan power, and the leader who leads them. It's the only really obvious choice in the first century when we look around to see who this could be. Rome is the place of the emperor worship. It's where the emperors were declared gods, uh, where any gods who kind of got in the way, they were blasphemed and they were crushed. So that only the God who gave the power to Rome could rule. And we know who gave that power to Rome, don't we? first beast is portrayed as a king or an emperor with a crown on his head or actually he has all these heads with all these crowns upon him and verse 2 says the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority so we know the power behind the throne we know the power behind the empire and, you know, the beast doesn't just stand for Domitian, who was the current emperor at that point. He, he kind of stands for all of them who were involved in persecution. Um, Domitian was crowned and powerful, and he was pretty popular. But one emperor after another in this kingdom begin calling themselves God. In fact, if you get a Roman coin and you look at some of these coins and you begin to read what's on there, I just looked at one from Domitian the other day, and on the other side... It will say, Son of God. Can you imagine? Son of God. Now, I've read that the Roman soldiers had this emperor cult that they formed. And so it wasn't always actually the emperor or the king who declared himself to be the Son of God. It was the Roman soldiers from their cult who declared him to be king. And they insisted that he take on that title. Well, you know, as soon as you declare yourself to be the Son of God, you can't allow any other gods. 
You know, there were about 10 persecutions from Nero through until Constantine finally put an end of it in the fourth century. The Roman emperors insisted on worship, but the Christians refused. And that put them on a collision course with the empire. The known world was worshiping the beast, but the Christians wouldn't do that. As it suggests in verse 10, some would go into captivity, and some would become slaves, and some would be killed by the sword. Let's look at the second monster before we get too far into analyzing this. We're looking at uh, Revelation 13, starting in verse 11, verse 11 through 17. Let me read that. And then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to breathe into the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all the people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads and so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and the number is 666. Well, that's a passage I think we're familiar with. That's a a passage that gets preached about an awful lot in Christian circles. When Nero died, and, and you have to know that Nero when he finally became unpopular, he was a ruthless emperor. He persecuted Christians brutally and did terrible, terrible things. And when he began to become unpopular, he was named an enemy of the state by the Senate. And rather than face execution, he took his own life, cut his throat, his own throat with a sword. So there's that reference that happens there in that passage that we just looked at. And, and the Romans, uh, uh, they, they were worried that when he committed suicide, that it was the end of the Roman Empire, that the Roman Empire would die. That was the fear. But that didn't happen. In fact, about four more emperors later, it really began to come to strong power again. It was like that, that dead empire began to resurrect and it began to be reborn The Romans must have thought, we're immortal. (laughs) You know, nothing can hurt us. And and they had this experience of having four different armies come against Rome, and all four of them failed. And they really must have thought that they were immortal. And and so they began to uh, reproduce what was happening in Rome on a local level. 
And so they began to give this authority and power to different municipalities, to different cities, to different provinces. And, and these local leaders began to act like secondary gods, a god under a god. They were the provincial rulers, the city lords. They were imitating Rome for all they were worth. You ever seen a bowl of fruit? And you look at that bowl of fruit and that looks delicious and your mouth starts to water and you think, oh, I could just taste that, that really nice apple that I can see right there. I can really taste that in my mouth already. And you go up and you pick up that piece of fruit and it's wax or it's plastic. Have you ever seen artificial fruit like that? It looks so real, but it's not. It's, it's fake. It's an imitation of the real thing. The Roman Empire was gaining ground all the time in the part of Turkey that John had been pastor in, where he had overseen those seven churches of Asia Minor, the seven churches that are talked about at the beginning of Revelation. And the Roman Empire began to move into that area, and emperor worship and the spread of pagan worship came with it. And all these little local lords and rulers exercised the power of the first beast with the authority of Rome. The second beast, the one from the land, was all these little rulers and this whole system that grew up that they lived off and that they worshipped in. Kind of completes, if you look at the, the passage, it completes an unholy trinity. You have the dragon, who is Satan, we have the monster from the sea, who's Rome, and we have the monster from the earth, which is all the system that developed to support it and to worship it, and all those little demigods who grew up as part of it. The writers from John's day, they talk about the tricks that were used by these people to promote the religion that was being taught in Rome. Um, one writer talks in real disgust. He says, you know, that, that they had statues that moved or wept or spoke or bled, and it was all fakery. But it worked. And the local people who were very superstitious, they worshiped the pagan gods. But earlier in the book of Revelation, we saw the real thing. Earlier in the book of Revelation, we got to look into heaven. And there's the one true God sitting on his throne, the all-powerful sovereign Lord of everything. And the Lamb, his son, is the one whose death rescued people from slavery to sin and death. He lifted them up from slaves to a holy priesthood. And the Spirit of God is at work in those people doing God's will, accomplishing God's works. That's what's real. That's the real thing. That's the real ruler. That's the one with the real power. And you know, for all of its power and glory and all its pomp that Rome had, it was just wax fruit. It was plastic. And the system that it bred all those that extended out from it, that whole world was fake. It wasn't the real thing. That was the plastic fruit. There is nothing 
in comparison to the real thing, the real God, the one who sits on the throne in heaven. Well, then we come to the exciting part, the mark of the beast. Around this time, it became the local practice in the provinces that unless you sacrifice to the statue that they erected in each marketplace, if you didn't sacrifice to that statue that personified Rome and also often had the emperor's face on it or a face of one of the gods, if you didn't sacrifice to it, then you were not allowed into the market. Um, I remember the video series that we watched just a short time ago talked about how in Ephesus, you needed to have a guild card in order to go into the marketplace. That was a, 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 mark that, a, a card that said you were part of the guild and you were allowed to trade and you were allowed to buy and you were allowed to sell. But in order to get the guild card, you had to burn incense to the emperor. You had to have a sacrifice to the little god. Well, there were different marks that were used in different cities at that time that indicated whether you were able to trade or not able to trade. The local soldiers, because they were into this cult, they, they exercised their authority and they really enforced it brutally. Some Christians were going to die because they refused to burn incense. Others were practically starving because they refused to do that in order to gain permission to enter the marketplace. And some of our churches, what we read about at the beginning of Revelation, it says that they had suffered in that way. And some people would be taken into slavery. In the first century, if you were a slave, you'd be marked with a tattoo. Usually it was on your calf or on your arm. And if you were a gladiator, they would brand you on your forehead. There was no running away from being a gladiator. You were instantly marked, and they could see who you were. Well, that's the analogy that's being used here in this passage, except that the mark of the beast in Revelation 13, it doesn't come about by force. It may come about by pressure, but it comes when you make your choice to pledge allegiance to the king of Rome, to the emperor, to the little god, instead of the real king, the son of God. It's voluntary. It may be under duress, but it's voluntary. Christians are in the last part of the first century, and that part, you know, at this time when we're, we're talking about, they had a very hard choice to make. You either pledge loyalty to the beast or sacrifice to the idol of the emperor or face the loss of your livelihood, and in some, some instances, the loss of their freedom or the loss of their lives. And for sure, they were no longer able to trade in the market to buy and sell if they did not participate. On the other hand, if you gave in, you lost your integrity as a believer. Well, wait a minute. It's just one small, tiny thing, isn't it? You just do that one small thing and everything will be all right. It's only a little thing, just a little pinch of incense on the altar burner and it's off to the market. That's all we'd have to do. You could still believe in your heart. You could just go through the motions. Who would know? 
think about yourself in that place, you would know. And of course, God would know. Later on, when Christians began to cave in under the Diocletian persecutions and they began to burn incense to the emperor, um, they, the church had been in a scattered state. And when the persecution ended and the Christians started coming back in, they knew who had sacrificed to the emperor and they wouldn't allow them to come back into the church they, they ended up going off and forming their own church. The reason they wouldn't let them come back in, they said, you came to Christ and you were baptized as a seal, as, as the mark that this is what I've done with my life and this is how I've chosen to live. And they had done that in their lives and that meant they were promising to follow Christ forever and they were betraying Christ. And so it caused a split in the church at that point. Who would know? It's only a little thing. But it became a great dividing line. When we read this chapter, I think that sometimes when we read it and we take it at surface value or we, we try to make it super literal, we get so worried about the dragon and the beast and that maybe somehow accidentally we took the mark of the beast at breakfast when we ate our toast. You know, there, there are so many things different weird conspiracy theories about how one would take the mark of the beast. You know, during COVID, it was the vaccine. If you took the vaccine, there was a microchip, and that microchip was going to be emplaced in you, and you were marked for life with the mark of the beast. Well, no, no. If you take the mark of the beast, it's because you know about it, and you choose to take it yourself. That's very clear in this passage. Well, if we get too focused on, on the beasts and the mark we might not see the real message in the chapter. The call from Jesus. If you go back to verse 9, we hear an important call from the first few chapters of the book that, that tell us that Jesus is calling our name. Whoever has ears, let them hear. That's in verse 9. We heard that before not only did we hear it at the beginning of Revelation, we heard that, that back in the book of Matthew when Jesus was calling his disciples. Are you listening? Have you got your ears on? Whoever has ears to hear. And then in the first part of Revelation, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is clearly Jesus speaking and saying, pay attention, this is the most important part. And what is that call for first century Christians when they faced impossible choices? The first thing Jesus calls them to is patient endurance and faithfulness. Patient endurance and faithfulness. The last part of verse 10 says, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. This is right smack in the middle of all this stuff that's going on. God isn't calling them here to be dragon slayers. He already did that on the cross. And he isn't calling them to be conformists, to fit in with society and pop culture and go along to get along. He doesn't call them to do that. They aren't called to compromise. They're not called to worship the king who gets his power from the dragon who is Satan. They're called to a different life. 
There's a new translation that N.T. Wright has done um, in, a, in a book he calls Revelation for Everyone. And here's how he translates um, this part. He says, this is a summons for God's holy people to be patient and have faith. I like the way he words that. To be patient and have faith. In other words, to be faithful first. Be patient to endure the hardship because we expect something so much better on the other side. Endure because you have faith and the reward is freedom forever. Eternally in a place where the Romans don't rule and the petty tyrants don't enforce the Roman rule. Where you won't suffer anymore. No more death or dying. No more tears or crying. Patience and faith together are faithfulness. Loyalty to Christ, no matter what is endured. Second thing that he says here is a call for wisdom and insight. In verse 18, it says, this, call, this calls for wisdom on God's people's part. Let the person who has the insight calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man. That number is 666. So in the face of deceit and oppression and outright persecution, they're called here by God, by Jesus, to have wisdom. They needed spiritual discernment to recognize the devil's work in the Roman Empire and in the emperor and in all that Rome represented. Without discernment, they would align themselves with the state in a way that compromised the integrity of their Christian faith. That's 666, what does that mean? Well, what is God's number? As you go through scripture, God's number is identified as seven and it comes up over and over again. It, it, it goes back to creation when he created the earth and on the sixth day it was complete and perfect and so on the seventh day he rested. And he said it was good. Well, seven is the number of God. 666 is meant to be a mockery of God. God says to these people, look at the numbers and figure it out. Six is the number of man, of humans in the Bible, and of weakness. Man was created on the sixth day, you may remember. Men are appointed six days to labor. Six is the number of man. The mark of the beast is not the number of God. It's the number of man. It's not God's mark. It falls way short of that. Now, it may not be a literal mark. It might be like a card. It might be a real mark taken on, not by accident. It's taken on, according to Jesus, through John, by people who value personal safety and comfort more than loyalty to Christ. I know there's lots on the table here, but what is our call? Our call is the same as their call. We are called to patient endurance and faithfulness in the face of persecution. We may experience persecution. The call to exercise wisdom and insight is so that we will recognize when something is man's foolishness 
or if it's Satan's agenda. We may not have Rome, but we have a lot of power brokers, don't we? And there's a whole lot more we can say on that. We're going to talk more about that as we go on. We'll pick up more next week. But for now, I want you to go away thinking about the call to faithfulness in any situation, to remain faithful to Christ no matter what. Let's pray about that. Heavenly Father, there is so much here to ponder. We're faced with the historical realities of our brothers and sisters in Christ and what they went through and how you told them to handle it. They face such suffering and persecution, and yet they remain faithful to you, and they put their hope in you. And your church grew so rapidly, it filled the entire known world. And now it's everywhere. Lord, help us to be faithful. Teach us how to stand firm in our faith. And Lord, give us the strength to do it. And help us to have the full integrity that we need in our faith, especially in the face of temptation, the temptation to give in to pressure, to give in to governments or other worldly power brokers. We follow you, Lord. We take our name from you, and we long to be like you and to be with you. We pray, Lord, in your name. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen.